Branding Badass, and welcome to Branding Matters, a podcast I created and host to help you create brand equity. Branding Matters is brought to you by Genumark, one of North America's most trusted branded merch makers for over 40 years. Branded merchandise is one of the best ways to create brand awareness. Whether with your team or your fans, there's no better way to show your appreciation, connect with your audience, and build community than combining thoughtful design with great products that tell your brand story. When you partner with Genumark, you get more. More personalized service, more creativity, more innovative solutions, and more importantly, you get it all from a talented team of branding experts who have the experience and know-how to make your job easier and best of all, more fun. From promotional products, custom uniforms and clothing, to sports co-branding, web stores and warehousing, Genumark makes it happen. And being ISO certified, you can rest assured ethical sourcing and sustainability are front and center. Genumark is big enough to matter, but small enough to care. So if you're looking for the right partner to help you create brand awareness, email brandingmatters at genumark.com to start your next project today. That's brandingmatters at G-E-N-U-M-A-R-K dot com. My guest today is Alan Weiss, one of the world's most highly sought after consultancy experts whose clients have included such brands as Mercedes-Benz, Merck, Hewlett-Packard, New York Times, and over 200 more. Alan's also a best-selling author of 64 books, and one of his most famous books, Million Dollar Consulting, has been through five editions and appears in 12 languages around the world. I invited Alan to be a guest on my show today to talk about consulting. I wanted to learn what role branding plays when you're a consultant, and I was curious to learn about value-based fees and why more people should adopt this way of doing business. Alan, I am really thrilled to have you with me today. Welcome to Branding Matters. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. So where are you right now? East Greenwich, Rhode Island. Oh, that's nice. Are you from New York originally? Where are you from originally? I'm, I'm from just across the river in New Jersey, right opposite the Empire State Building. Okay, cool. I love it there. Okay, well, let's get right into it. We have a lot to cover. I'm super excited to have you here. So, Alan, tell me about the day that you decided that you couldn't spend another minute doing anything else other than what you're doing right now. Well, it's probably the day I got fired. And, uh, you know, I, was, I came up to Rhode Island here to be president of a behavioral consulting firm. And I did that for about 15 months. And then the owner of the firm, uh, who's a multi, multi-millionaire, W. Clement Stone, he and I just didn't agree on anything. Uh, and so he fired me abruptly. And my wife said, what do you want to do? And I said, I never want to be fired by a moron again. Uh, and so the only way, you know, you really create something is to own something. And so I'm going out on my own. And she said to me, okay, I support you. I mean, we had a mortgage, kids in private school. We had very little money in the bank. And she said, I support you, but get serious. And I said, okay, fair enough. And so I did. Okay, so what were you doing there, and do you, why did you get fired? Did they tell you? W. Clement Stone was a, a guy who sold industrial insurance during the Depression. For a penny or two a week, he went through factories, five, six floors, climbed them, you know, no elevators. And people give him a, a penny or two a week for industrial insurance, which meant that if they died, they wouldn't be buried in a pauper's field. They'd get a separate gravestone for the family. And he made a fortune doing this. And then he found a consolidated insurance. He got some smart financial help. And when I knew him, uh, this is back in the mid 80s, he was already in his 80s and um, he was worth $450 million. And he would go around preaching on positive mental attitude. 
And I said to him one day, you know, his etiology was off, which, you know, that's the science of cause and effect. And I said, you don't have $450 million because you had a positive mental attitude. You have a positive mental attitude because you have $450 million. And if you give everyone $450 million, they'll all have positive mental attitudes. Yeah, right. Right. He didn't like that. So he fired me. Wow. So what was that day like for you? You went home and you said, that's it. I'm done with this BS and I want to go on my own. And He fired me in the Admiral's Club at O'Hare Airport where he had called a meeting because he lived in Chicago. And I called my wife and I said, told her what happened. She said, well, we kind of figured that was going to happen. When something like that happens to you, you either get very angry or you get very depressed. And I got really angry. And I said, you know, I, why would I allow myself to be in this kind of a position? And so it was this freeing feeling that now I was on my own and my victories would be mine. My defeats would be mine, but I couldn't blame anybody else. And that was wonderful. And so I started calling everybody I knew. Telling them what? I said, just as I advise all my coaching clients globally today, I tell them the same thing. Call everybody you know and say, I am launching exciting value for people in this direction, whatever your specialty is. And at the time, I said, I am dramatically improving individual and organizational performance. I was a Fortune 1000 consultant. And I called everybody I knew. And what do you know? One of the earliest leads I got was at Merck Pharmaceuticals, where I knew people from a training company I used to be with. And Merck became a client for 12 years. And I made probably $3 million from Merck and another $3 million from referrals because Merck was, you know, America's most admired company five years in a row. And I started to make all this money. But, you know, when I first went down there in 1985, I bought a $2,000 suit in 1985. And I traveled first class and I got a limo to take me to these places. And my wife said, you know, we have no money. And I said, listen, I am not showing up in a buyer's office perspired and rumpled and late. One sale pays for all this. And that's what I've always done ever since. And it paid off. You have to invest in yourself. People have a scarcity mentality. You need an abundance mentality. Yeah, I love that. That's great. And it's so true because perception is everything. So let's talk about consulting because that is obviously your area of expertise. And so I like what you said earlier, a consultant is defined as someone who adds value. So how do you define value? Because I hear that word all the time. You hear it all the time in business and everyone talks about value. So how do you define value? Value is an improved client condition. So it could be monetary and and quantifiable, qualitative, or it could be non-financial. I mean, for example, greater security, uh, greater peace of mind, less stress, more time with your family and so forth. Uh, But what we do is we improve the client's condition. When we walk away, the client had better be better off. And so, you know, the doctors say first do no harm, right? That's not good enough. We can't just not do harm. We have to improve the client's condition. And so the the quid pro quo here, the equitable exchange is, I improve your condition and make you happier and better off and you give me money. That's how it works. Would you say it's subjective though? Value becomes in both both subjective things, you know, uh, I want to be less, spend less time playing a referee among my teams and objective things. I want our sales to increase and we can measure that. So some things are scientific and measurable by metrics, you know, turnover and profit. Some things are not so measurable, except they're anecdotal. And I can tell. So I can tell if I'm feeling happier. I can tell if the aesthetics around me are better. I can tell if I feel safer. And as long as you can tell, that's good enough for me. I love that. And I've heard you talk to about coaching versus consulting. Mm. And I'm curious to know what's the difference. And if someone is thinking of, you know, I want to be a coach or I want to be a consultant, are they mutually exclusive? No, they're synergistic. 
They're not exclusive at all. And the fact is that, you know, I, I'm probably going to annoy a lot of your readers here, but I don't believe in coaching universities and coaching certifications and all that. I mean, who certifies the certifiers, right? So here's the point. I've been consulting for 30 years and all over globally. And uh, I've also been coaching for 30 years globally. And so I you do, do more, both? Uh, yes, but I do more of the latter today. I've moved from Fortune 1000 firms to entrepreneurs and boutique firm owners. Okay. Uh, but the fact is that when you are a consultant, and you're creating organizational change, you also have to commensurately coach people in how to maintain the change and how to sustain the change and how to work with others to convince them to change. So that's a coaching ramification. So every consultant's a coach. However, if you are a coach specifically and you help people, let's say, deal with the media or handle uh, confrontative conversations or, or you help them select talent and so forth, you're not necessarily a consultant. You're looking at a smaller microcosm. So my feeling is that people are better off being consultants who also coach than just coaches, because there's not there's nothing that says a coach who's helping you change your behavior really knows much about organizational dynamics or strategy or greater change or things like that. I have a book called Million Dollar Coaching. And the first thing I ask in the book is this. Has anyone ever come to you in your life and asked for help? And if so, did you give them help? And if so, did it work? And if you answered yes to all this, congratulations, you're a coach. But what about the idea that, so I know a couple of coaches and they have to go through extensive training and courses and they spend so much. No, they much don't. No, they don't. No, they don't. They choose to. They don't okay. Have. Sorry. They do. They choose to, to get accredited. So to, they do these coaches, they do these courses and they do all these things. They pay a lot of money. Um, but then. I've heard a lot of people who tell me that they're consultants without any, without that same sort of investment as financial financially goes. That's, so that's a great point. That's a great yeah. point. The fact is spending money to be certified as a coach doesn't do anything. It doesn't make you a better coach. Moreover, executives and companies don't say, I need a coach. Get me a certified coach for this coaching university. They never say that. Right. You know who says that? Human resources says that. And human resources, HR, stands for hardly relevant. Sorry, say that again. Hardly relevant. Hardly, hardly relevant. relevant. <laughs> yeah. So who cares? So, okay. But, but you're right. You're exactly right. The thing about consulting is there is no barrier to entry. So that means the good part of that is it's very easy to get into it. You don't have to pay people money and get certifications and all that crap. But the bad part is anybody can hang out a shingle, say they're a consultant, and they could have complete schlock. Right. I wrote Million Dollar Consulting, the original book. It's in its sixth edition now. But in 1992, when I first wrote it, I found we were in Atlantic City gambling on, on the beach and so on. I found out there was a palm reader on the beach in Atlantic City. She required more licensing to read palms on the boardwalk in Atlantic City than a consultant needed to go to work in Atlantic City. So you raise a good point. And that, therefore, caveat emptor, the buyer has to be aware. But you don't want to say to the consultant, well, who did you pay to get certification? Where is your certificate? What you want yeah. to pay to the consultant is, with whom have you worked? What kind of results have you generated? What kind of intellectual property do you have? Those are the questions, not somebody certifying you. Right. Okay. So I find that really interesting. I started my podcast January 1st, 2021, because there was a lot of forced entrepreneurs, COVID, a lot of people started their own business and a lot of people became consultants, right? They decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And so I love that you're on here today because I have a lot of consultants that are listening. So what does it take to be a good consultant and what role do you think branding plays in leveraging your now consultancy and growing your business as a consultant? So first of all, if you're going to go into consulting, you have to understand immediately that this is the marketing business. And I'll stipulate you're good at what you do. I'll stipulate you're a good consultant in terms of, oh, pricing or finance or healthcare, whatever it is. But the fact is, and I tell everybody I coach this, 
This is the marketing profession, and very few of us have been taught marketing. Even MBA people, MBA students haven't been taught marketing. So that's number one. So you better realize that you have to reach out to buyers. That's that's number one. If you don't like reaching out to buyers, go into another line of work, okay? Number two, the kind of skills you need are critical thinking skills and processes. The reason that I had clients in almost every kind of of business, uh, from Merck to uh, Citibank, to uh, airlines and so forth, is that processes are transferable. And so you don't have to be an expert in the auto business to consult with an automaker, but you do have to know the processes of how to provide better service, better responsiveness, and so forth. When I first worked in, walked into Mercedes-Benz in the United States, the, the president of US operations says to me, what do you know about cars? You know, now, a lot of consultants say, well, I drive one, you know. And I said to him, I don't know anything about cars. You know about cars. You're Mercedes. He said, well, how can you help us? I said, well, you don't need another car expert. you got car experts laying in the hall out there. I had to walk over them to get to your office. But Lexus is eating your lunch on service. And I know service. That's what you need. And so it's a process thing. That's how you become a great consultant. And then the third thing you asked me, which I'd like to respond to, is this. You're exactly right. Branding's everything. And most people think of a brand as a uniform representation of quality. You know, McDonald's is McDonald's, Mercedes is Mercedes, you know, Brioni is Brioni. But pragmatically, a brand is how people think about you when you're not around. And that's what you have to create so that people say, you know, just like if they want strategy, they say, get me McKinsey. They've got to say, I need this, get me her, get me him. And so it's never too early or too late to build a brand. And the ultimate brand is your name. And so while it's nice to be in a hat that says, get me a strategist and I'm in the hat, it's much better for them to say, get me Alan Weiss, right? Because that precludes competition. I started out as a contrarian. When I was fired, I simply disagreed with everything. And that got me into the media. And until today, people still call me the contrarian. But, you know, my, my international, my global brand today is my name. I love that. I love that. So there are so many good nuggets there that you just said. One thing that I love when you said about you don't need to be the expert in that particular field to be a consultant. And I think that's true for so many um, service businesses and especially in marketing, like you said, because again, I have a lot of clients who they know their business better than anybody else, right? Like again, we'll use the car industry. They know the car industry, but what they don't know is how to create that brand awareness, how to elaborate on their brand promise and all about their branding, which they don't know anything about. And that's where I've had people come to me and say, I don't know how to do this. All I know is how to build cars. And so I love that you said that because I don't think you have to know necessarily about that particular industry. It's just how how do you get them to grow? Because isn't that back to what you said about adding value and solving their problem as a consultant is when you can have those metrics met and that's how you create that value? Well, that's right. And, right? Uh, you know, the, the great thing about professional services is that they're fungible. In other words, you can deal with anybody. An accounting firm doesn't just deal with construction firms. They can deal with chemical firms. They can deal with retail department stores. They can deal with coffee shops. Same thing with attorneys, you know, same thing with designers and architects. And so as consultants or coaches, we can deal with anybody if we choose to. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. So a big part of obviously branding and marketing and building your business is creating trust, right? You ta- I think it's really important. It's all about relationships, whatever business you're in. So what are some ingredients for how a consultant needs to build trust with their consumer or their new clients? Well, let's take a prospect, a future buyer, right? A future buyer. Yeah, I think that's most appropriate for most of your listeners. And the fact is that you actually have to slow down to speed up. And so you can't rush in. When anybody says pitch to me, I tell them, I hope they're talking about baseball. (laughs) 
<laughs> because if you're talking about pitch and selling and marketing, you're in the 1950s. You know, you're lost in the 50s. And so you, it's not about a pitch. It's, it's about creating trust by having a conversation, not a presentation, a conversation. And the conversation has to provide value. It has to know, show that, you know, something about the client. I don't think you need to be an expert in the industry, as I said, but if you're talking to a banker, conversantly, you should know what a loan defalcation is. You know, it's a key banking term. Mm -hmm. And so you read the Wall Street Journal, you know what's going on in their environment, you know what's going on in their industry from reading the Wall Street Journal, and you have a conversation with them and you begin to ask them questions. Uh, you know, what do you think about this? Or have you reacted to that? And now there's a, there's a trust building. And I'll tell you how you can tell it's trust. If the other person starts asking your advice, if the other person shares things that are confidential, you know, we're thinking of getting rid of our thinking of getting rid of our marketing vice president. It's confidential, but what would you if they so you know that happens? Wow. Uh, if they don't accept interruptions, their secretary, the phone, email, they don't accept interruptions. And if they if they share humor with you, if they tell you something funny, or if they think you said something funny, hopefully deliberately, you know, these are all signs of trust. And then that's the signal for you to start to move on. I love that you said that about humor, first of all, because I think humor is such a great icebreaker and it's a great way to connect people. But I want to go it back just, to... Just the stress. Yeah, I, I love it. I use it all the time and when I talk to people. But I want to go back to pitch for a second because you still, I know you said that it's a 1950s term, but you still hear that a lot today. And I work with RFPs a lot of the times. And I used to be in advertising in my prior life and we did RFPs all the time. And so businesses still want you to pitch and they still want you to pitch for their business. So how do you get around that when that's- No, they, no, they don't. No, they don't. No, they don't. Executives don't want you to pitch and no, no one should respond to an RFP. RFPs are stupid. RFPs are created by low-level people who ask you stupid questions. You know, how long will you spend on site? Will you eat your lunch here? Do you cut the crust off your bread? Those are the questions they ask in RFPs. They're stupid because they're low-level people. If you want, if, if you see an RFP, I hope my boss is listening to this right now because I don't care. We get, no, I love it because we get our we say the same. Listen, full disclosure behind the curtain. Whenever we get a request for an RFP, and I know we're not the only ones, every company says this. I hate RFPs. They mean nothing. Like, why did they do them? But still, everybody does them. That's because not enough people are coaching with me. The way you get around an RFP is you provide a sole source alternative, and by providing sole source alternative, you escape the bidding process. Okay, so I don't want to hijack the conversation, but RFPs are dumb. And I want to get back to your other point. No executives expect you to pitch. Executives expect you to provide them with value. And if you provide them with value, they will choose. Now, I'll tell you something. A lot of people think that the more you pitch, the more you advertise, the more you use social media, the more business you get. All that's crap. The statistics are over the last decade, executives and corporations, I'm not talking about mom and pop stores here, but executives and corporations make important decisions based on peer level reference. I had a guy from Wharton, John, uh, Jonah Berger. He wrote uh, Contagion and Invisible Influence. He's a great, great guy. He spoke at one of my events and his research is this. And he found that only about 4% of this kind of peer level influence comes over the internet. Everything else is in person or it's like this in Zoom. And so if you think about it, People ask people they trust, do you know a good realtor? Do you know a good doctor? Do you know a good vacation spot? What kind of car should I get? And we reciprocate. We do the same thing because we want to help people. Executives speak to each other that way. I need a good consultant. Do you know one? And that's how you get business. You don't pitch anybody. 
I love everything you just said, and I agree with everything you just said. And I think, and I, I, I mean, I'm kind of challenging you on this because I agree with what you're saying, but I also know in the reality, in my experience too, especially bigger companies like really big corporations that we work with, they have to be. They've said like we have to be transparent and we have to go out for an RFP every three years, every five years, and it's all done very systematically. So it depends whether you're dealing with procurement and people like that who are in the yeah. basement of the building or the executives who are up on the 40th floor. And if you establish trusting relationships with executives, they're not going to go through procurement. And every executive can circumvent an RFP process. It's not written in law. There's no federal mandate for RFPs, except in rare situations. Even the federal government, which uses RFPs, has passed something years ago called the FAR Act. And the FAR Act says you do not need to choose the least expensive option. You can choose the option with, guess what? The highest value. I love that. I love that. And that brings me to my next topic that I want to get into, which is value-based fees. I know you're not a big fan. I, as I am a big fan. I wrote a... Sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm, sorry. I'm right. so wrong. Sorry. You, I meant... You should not drink this early in the day. I want to tell I know. <laughs> Don't... You just gave away my secret. No, I love that. I know. I love it. So I want to read a quote that you said, because I... So you said, lousy service providers build a time unit as though their presence and their time is of value. And you call that form of billing unethical. Right. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, simple. If you are paid based on how long you were there, but you accept the fact the client deserves a speedy resolution, that inherently is at odds with each other. In other words, the longer I stay, the more I get. But the quicker a problem is solved, the more the client gets. You have to eliminate. It's totally unethical. And so you do that by charging based on value. And I'll give you the, the language I use. The client says, what's your billing model? I say, based on value. And the client says, well, what does that mean? Everybody I've used is charging me by the hour. And I say, I create a very dramatic return on investment for you, for which I expect equitable compensation. That's how partners act. And I provide clients, by the way, with at least a minimum of a 10 to 1 return. And you can't get a 10 to 1 return unless you bought Apple stock about 20 years ago. So that's how I organize it. And that's how I communicate it. And 95% of every client I've dealt with in corporate America or among SMEs or with individuals accept that because it's highly rational. So I don't believe in the hourly billing. I don't believe in attorneys you know, charging you $4,578.57, the 57 cents being a stamp they had to buy. And uh, I don't believe in lawyers' contingency fees where they take a part of the proceeds, often most of it, rather than the client getting it. The, the courts were never made, the justice system was never made to operate that way. So this is the most ethical and equitable form of interaction. Uh, you know what? You're speaking with someone who went through a divorce and had to pay my divorce lawyer. <laughs> and so, you know, when you have to pay for, like you said, every email and every phone call and every stamp, you're right. I hate that. And I totally agree with you. There's a company in Calgary. They're actually a client of mine. So I'm going to give them a shout out. And they're called Good Lawyers. And they've totally done that whole um, value-based fees concept and the way they do their billing versus the old way because of everything you just said. So do you find more and more companies are starting to to do that? I'm, I'm trying to imagine the insane person who got who left you or who you threw out. Insanity. You're My so God. sweet. Well, it, bad well, decisions. Oh, you're very nice. Thank you. I appreciate that. But okay, you know. what, what, what was your next question here? <laughs> now you got me all flustered. Oh, oh just well, I was just talking, I wanted to kind of elaborate on value-based fees. So as a yeah. consultant, so I'm starting a business, and I actually want to ask you something else in 
conjunction with that. But as a consultant, when you go to somebody new or prospect, like you said, when do you bring up the actual fee when you're talking to them? Because you obviously- Never. 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 Until they get the bill. Until they get your bill. No, no, no. Until they get the proposal. Okay. And so here's what happens. I get, let's just say you're you're the buyer. I get conceptual agreement with you about three things. What are the objectives, the business outcomes that we're going to achieve, right? A business outcome is not better communication. A business outcome is less turnover, more revenue, more profit, better brand, and so forth. Number two is, what are the metrics? How will we know we're making progress? And number three is the value. If we hit these objectives, then what's the value for us? So if you take something like profit, which seems in and of itself to be value, if we have greater profit, we might have higher salaries, we might have a better bonus pool, we might have better investors, we might be able to pay down debt, we might build new facilities, I could go on and on. So I explore and exploit that kind of profit. I talk about options that you can engage in. So I never say take it or leave it. Here are three ways we can work together. And then only when they see the proposal do they see terms and conditions. So I don't want them worrying about fees. In the corporate world, in large corporations, you don't have to worry very much. In smaller companies, especially privately held, closely held companies, you often have to say, look, this is going to be a minimum of, because these are the people who are saying, should I spend money on this? Or should I put it toward my kid's orthodonture? You know, mm-hmm. should I put it toward the family vacation? But somebody working, you know, in Boeing isn't concerned about that. So people make a mistake of talking about fees way too early. And if the client, if the prospect says, well, what would your fees be? What will this run me? You say, well, I'll tell you what, if I can ask you a few questions, I'll have a proposal on your desk tomorrow with all the fees and all the options. Is that good enough? And they said, well, yeah, okay. But why can't you just give me a range now? And you say, it would be unfair to you for me to quote something off the top of my head. I need to sit back and reflect on what you're telling me. So it's always in the buyer's best interest. Okay. So where do you come up with your fees? Like, how did you come up with your, how do you decide, okay, I'm going to charge, you know, whatever, 50,000 or 150,000 for this and this? Like, how did they just pull them out of thin air or you need to pay for your son's university or where do you come up with the fees? Actually, I have a funny story about that (laughs) when I first got into coaching. But in any case, I promised at least a 10 to 1 return, all things being equal. And so if it's a million dollar project, that's a $100,000 fee at least. And so that's what you want to look at. And people, in my experience, dramatically over deliver and undercharge because they have low self-esteem. For sure. And so it's charge enough. And when they can, they say, well, as long as I'm here, can I do the windows for you? You know, that kind of stuff. So and they're always getting taken advantage of. And that's why they're not making enough profit. And by the way, I say this very slowly and carefully, but women are worse than men. So. Okay, hold on. I got to stop you. Why? I'll tell you what I've observed. Women are naturally better consultants than men because. I agree. Okay. Well, (laughs) how do you like that? Of course. (laughs) Because men tend to look at a single bullseye kind of an issue where women think in more web-like terms. And if we walk out of an office together, I'll say, okay, I think this is what he needs to move forward. And you'll say, yeah, but did you see what he had on the walls? He has an interest in. And so a woman takes more into consideration and men have much more to unlearn than women do, which makes it harder for them. However, women don't argue enough for themselves Hmm. and they don't put forth a strong enough case. There was a study done by USA Today that showed that it intended to show that women weren't receiving the raises and promotions that men got. Now, I'm sure that's probably true. I'm not arguing with that. But when they looked at some of the reasons, a lot of the reasons they found in these test subjects was a man would get an evaluation and argue about it, and a woman would just accept it. 
a man would get a raise, even a decent one, and argue to get more, and a woman would just accept it. There's a woman named Helen Fisher who wrote a book, I think, called The Second Sex. She and I were on a speaking platform together, and she taught me all these things. She was fascinating, just fabulous. And I think it's something to consider. Now, not all men are like that. Not all women are like that. You no, know that. of course. Yeah. But I do see these kinds of these kinds of differences. Interesting. Okay. So I interrupted you. <laughs> we were going to talk about how you picked your fees and you're going to tell a funny story. So, oh, well, okay. So first of all, fees are 10 to 1 return. Right. And so, so that's the basis. So if it's a $50,000 project, it's probably going to be a 5,000 fee or around there. But, you know, I encourage consultants, you know, to, to look for six-figure projects. And so they have at least five-figure fees. If you do uh, 60000 a month, you got a half million dollar year. You know, it works like that. That's how you have to think. But here's the, here's the story. Okay. When I got fired, but, but here's the real truth. <laughs> here's the other side of the story. Yeah. <laughs> when I got fired, you know, I, I struggled, I struggled. I started to do very well. Then my fourth book was Million Dollar Consulting. And that was a big hit. And it still is in the sixth edition today. So people started calling me for free advice. And I got a really big head. And I said, oh, my God, they're calling me for all these consultants calling me for free advice. And so after about six months of this, after the book came out, I said, I'm dying here. I'm spending more time giving free advice. I am trying to make money. And so my wife said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to charge them. If they want to buy, I'm going to charge them. My wife says, I don't think people are going to pay you to give them advice on the phone. And I said, no, but if I have a charge, then they will bother me. So she said, what are you going to charge? And I said, $3,500. And it'll be for six months. And she said, where'd you come up with that number? Was that research? I said, no, it's the monthly fee on my Ferrari lease. Oh, my God. And if I can get just 12 people, I can pay the, for the Ferrari for a year. Well, I didn't get 12 people. I got 35 people right off the bat. Oh, and wow. I said, okay, I'm on to something. And that started this gradual change from the corporate market to the individual market. That's a great story. I love that. You know, it's funny. I mean, at the end of the day, our time is worth something, right? And I was guilty of that too. I was, when I started my podcast and it started to grow, I actually started to get a lot of people reach out to me to ask me and say, hey, I'm looking at starting a podcast. Do you have advice? And and I was giving free advice to friends, but then I started getting friends referring people and referring other people. And then I, so I literally was like, I can't do this anymore. And so I thought, okay, well, my time is worth something. So yes, I'll give you an hour of my time, but I'm going to charge thinking that they would say, okay, no, thanks. And they said, okay. And then they did. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, so, which was kind of interesting, but I want to ask you a question here. So we've talked a lot about service and helping people and value and everything else. What about people like myself and a lot of, a lot of people who sell products, you know, or have worked for a business and they have different products that they sell. So me personally, I work for a company. We do all swag, right? So t-shirts, hats, all that kind of stuff. Can you see my t-shirt? This one says feeling fabulous. It was for a women's group, but I also consider myself a consultant because of my background in marketing and advertising. When I work with my clients, I help them with their branding and it's all under the umbrella of how to create brand awareness and brand equity. And, you know, swag is a part of it. So when you're selling products and there's pricing specific, how do you then work in your fees? Because it isn't necessarily value-based fees because they pay for, you know, whatever, 500 t-shirts or this. How do you work that in it? And I want to get your advice on that because there's a lot of conversation in my industry about that. It's interesting. You know, you speak as fast as I do. <laughs> we're probably, we're going to get more into this interview than, you know, people take and get in two hours. Oh, that's so, so funny. During the height of the pandemic, a lot of retailers went under, a lot of uh, main street stores went under, but a lot of those that didn't did an interesting thing. They raised their fees. They raised their product fees. And when they raise their product fees, it creates the perception of more value. So normally fee follows value, right? And so the higher value you see, the more fee you're willing to pay for it. But there's a point where the lines cross. And so value follows fee, which means 
I believe I'm getting what I pay for. And so if you look at a Brioni suit, you don't need a Brioni suit to have a tire. You don't need a Bentley to have transportation, right? You don't need a, a Bulgari watch to tell the time, but you're emotionally engaged in these things because they satisfy your ego. You know, I needed a wrench a few months ago. I know nothing about wrenches, but I needed one to put something together for my wife. So I go to the hardware store and there were three wrenches that look alike. And one's $2, one's $4, one's $12. They all look exactly alike except different manufacturers. I took the $12 wrench. I figured it must be better material. That's how people think. And I didn't want to try to put something together, have a break in my hands. So you cannot be fearful of high prices because they purvey a certain value to the buyer. And you also have to realize why you can make a living undercutting other prices, your margins continue to diminish, and it means you have to work harder and harder. And this goes back to a point you, you mentioned just when you went into this about time. I'm going to tell you what real wealth is. Real wealth is discretionary time. It's not money. And a lot of people chase money so hard that they erode their wealth. Yeah, I love that. And I love what you said about the wrench. I want to go a little bit more into that because what about if there's that wrench and it's at, you know, you can buy it at three different places, let's say, right? One place you go in, you're treated super well. The service is phenomenal and they know your name. You walk in, they're like, hey, Alan, what can I do for you today? Versus you walk into another store where huge lineups and nobody's even paying attention to you. And it's a pain in the ass every time you go. Which one are you more apt to go to to get your wrench? You go where the better services. Right? Yeah. Right. And when you walk into a restaurant, uh, are you happier when a hostess says, so nice to see you? You know, let me show you to your seat. Is this Okay. Uh, have a great meal. Here are your menu. Somebody with you shortly. Or you're happy when the, when the uh, you barely get a smile out of the hostess and she says, follow me. And she puts you someplace. Say, you know, can we sit somewhere else? And she says, no, this is our seating chart. I mean, come on. It's a competitive industry. And you're exactly right. Service is a, a large component of the emotional makeup of people in determining where they'll spend their money. Yeah. No, it, we talk about that so much and you hear it all the time. And it's interesting, especially today when there's such a com more competitive market than ever before. And you don't feel that they care about your business. Okay. I want to talk before we go, I want to talk a little bit about a phrase that you trademarked the no normal. What does that mean? And how did you trademark that? Well, you can trademark anything that's your intellectual property that isn't in prior use and you are using in, in commercial use. Okay. And so, um, but you say, you know, American Express used to say, don't leave home without it. That's a trademark phrase. But then they got really smart because during the pandemic, nobody was leaving home. And so now American <laughs> Express says, don't live life without it. That's brilliant. Okay. So no normal is, is a registered trademark, which is the highest form of protection. And the reason I came up with it is this. As we went through the pandemic, I know, so no, I'm the contrarian, right? Everybody's talking about the new normal and the return to normal. There isn't any new normal. You know what normal means? Normal means average. Normal mm -hmm. means typical. You really want to be typical and average? I don't. Yeah. And I don't think my clients do. So consequently, I said, we might th see new realities, but there is no normal. And so I trademarked no normal. And it appears in my books and it appears in my speeches. And it's a different way of looking at life. And then I say to them, you look at volatility and you look at disruption and turn them into offensive weapons. Don't be scared of them. Don't get defensive. But you know what I'm finding today? You know, this whole phrase, you know, if life gives you a lemon, turn it to lemonade. I see a lot of people who have lemonade and they're turning it into lemons. Can you, I want you to elaborate a bit more on that, though. I mean, you, you touched on no normal and everything, but can you give an example? Sure. The normal denotes that you can predict what's going to happen together to tomorrow in a given setting or situation. You simply can't do that anymore. 
There's too much fickle normative pressure among the public. There's too much disinformation. People don't trust the traditional institutions like the medical community. They never trusted politicians. They don't trust higher education anymore. I mean, the New York Times has such a strong political slant that you almost fall over when you read it. Oh, my God. And so, yeah. Consequently, right? So you can't say, okay, tomorrow, uh, this is going to be how I approach uh, marketing. Tomorrow, this is how I'm going to implement over here. You have to take into consideration changing economies, changing demographics, right? Changing technology, changing competition, changing globalization. I mean, just look at social justice, for goodness sakes. It's changed the way we have to look at so many things. And every day we learn something new and we adapt differently. So please don't tell me about normal. That's not what we want. If people say, look, we're looking forward to the new normal, I say there is no normal. What we have are new realities. And the new realities shift every day. They change every day. Here's an example. You like examples. I do. <laughs> you pick up the Wall Street Journal, you pick up a major newspaper, and COVID and Ukraine and supply chain problems, all this, they're on inside pages. You know what's on the front page? Inflation. You know what's going to affect this election in November the most? Inflation. Because it affects everyone, no matter who you are. If inflation goes down and the market's going up right now and unemployment is way down, and there are jobs to be had. I mean, if this is a recession, it's a recession different from any other. These are the new realities. We have to stay light on our feet about this. We have to be flexible about it. People would say, you know, here's the, here's the, here's the normal. Oh, it's a recession. Take your money out of this and put it into that. But this isn't a typical recession. And so you can't do that if you're smart. You shouldn't do that. Then there'll be some other kind of issue coming up. We have to be light on our feet. No, I love that you said all that. And it you know, kind of goes full circle because what you talked earlier about when we talked about um, fees and value-based fees and a lot of consultants are concerned about not knowing what to charge. And especially when people, when what's going on with the economy, they're worried that they're charging too much. But there actually is a time, it's now a time, I think, where people want consultants and are willing to pay more to get that help to help solve their problems, right? I agree with you. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right on. Yeah. Okay. Wow. We've kind of covered a lot of ground here. We both talk fast. I told you. I know. You sure do. Okay. So you are still, I want to get a little bit personal here, if that's okay with you. I mean, I love talking business, but I also like to talk personal. So you're you, still- You had a boyfriend, right? I do, but he's, okay, he's, right. he's not jealous. It's okay. okay all right. <laughs> and you have a wife, so it's all good here. Okay, all um, good. So you're still working then. You're not retired. Retirement is an artifact. It makes no sense. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about retirement. So do you mind sharing how your age with us? Oh, no, I'll tell you. And I'm not going to do the stupid thing. Like, oh, guess how old I am. I'm 76. Okay. 76. Well, you'd look amazing and you have a lot of energy, which I love. And I think humor helps keep us young. If you Doesn't agree it? with yeah. that, I yeah. totally agree. And so you obviously keep yourself physically fit and mentally fit too. So what do you do to keep yourself? I mean, I'm assuming you probably work out and everything to keep yourself physically fit, but I want to know what do you do to keep yourself mentally fit? Because I find as I'm getting older, cause I'm old, getting older too. How I old find how old, wait, fair play. How old are you? Guess. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 55. Wow. Five. Yeah. That's, that's, that's at least 10 years more than I would have said. Well, thank you very much. But you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty healthy. That's why I want to talk about health before we go, because I'm very into health and fitness. So what do you do to keep your mind healthy? What do you, I've, I've read that you practice every day to do, keep your mind healthy. So what yeah, do you do? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, I and do work out three times a week physically. And I, so far I've done this without having to kill my trainer who I want to kill each time, but I managed to get out of there without a crime. Three, uh, three times a week you've worked out physically. 
Yeah, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Yeah. Good for you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But what I do every day, seven days a week, is this: I do acrostics at night. And the acrostic is a type of crossword puzzle. It's kind of complicated how the the clues come out, but it's it's great challenge to your mind in acrostic. So I do those. I do Wordle every single day, and I've never failed to solve it ever. Amazing. Uh, I write all the time. And writing requires intellectual generation, right? And I also so read. do you write? Sorry, do you write like a journal personally, or do you write your books, or what? What do you write? I have four columns a month. I have a weekly column. I do a weekly podcast. I have a monthly video. I mean, I could go on and on. And so, doing all this though really stimulates you because you have to come up with ideas and you have to talk about them. And I'm not a big preparer. I mean, I don't. I don't. I never rewrite. I never edit. I just do things. So consequently, uh, it really keeps you sharp. I never shy away from something. I mean, people ask me a tough question. I get into it. I don't say, I'll get to that later. I don't have a whining. And that's why I said to you, I don't want anything in advance. Right. You know, I do I do maybe two interviews a week. I never, ever want a question in advance. I, I want to handle them on the fly because that gets you used to handling things in the buyer's office on the fly as well. Right. So the other thing I would tell you for mental stimulation is this. I love to travel. And when you travel, I mean, you can see pictures of the Great Wall of China, but until you stood on it and you feel like an ant, you don't appreciate it. When my wife and I are going to uh, Australia in October, it's my 19th trip to Australia since the 70s. We're going to London in December. Uh, we just came back from going to Kauai. And then on the way, we stopped in L.A. both ways to see my new grandchild. So I think travel is very intellectually stimulating. If you don't close your eyes to what's going on around you and eat pasta every night, you got to be able to try. So, you know, life's for living. I wrote a book called Three Score and More. And Three Score and More talks about the fact that retirement is a silly thing to even consider. And I'm not saying you have to stay on a job. What I'm saying is you have to continue to contribute. And it's up to you how you do that. But I mean, to sit back and collect a pension and collect Social Security and be content with, you know, watching flowers grow. I mean, that's just waiting around to die, in my opinion. Yeah. Wow. I love your attitude. And you've got such good energy and outlook on life. And you almost should. I don't know if he's still alive. The gentleman, probably not, I guess, because you said he was in his 80s. Yeah, he's gone. Yeah, he's, yeah he's gone. But, but I mean, it's almost like you want to go back and thank him for firing you because it's probably the that's best right. thing that ever happened to you. You know something? Uh, I've worked with Dan Gilbert up at Harvard. He writes books on happiness, uh, stumbling on happiness and everything else. And he spoke for me at one of my events. And Dan talks about what I call synthetic happiness. And that is there's legitimate happiness. You have a birthday, you have an anniversary, you get a promotion. But synthetic happiness is when you hear people say, you know, I broke my arm. It's the best thing ever happened to me. We missed our flight. It's the best thing ever happened to me. I got fired. It's the best thing ever happened to me. And his research shows that people who use synthetic happiness like this, are as happy or happier than people who are only happy about these major events. Yeah, I believe that. And, you know, in a weird, twisted way, and you, and I've heard this a lot lately, and you tell me what you think, is, you know, no matter how tragic the whole pandemic has been and horrible it's been for so many people, it's a lot of good has come out of it, I think, on a personal level for people, because it's really making people look inwards at their lives and make big changes and do things they maybe wouldn't have done before. I think you're exactly right. You know, they talk about this great resignation. It's not a great resignation. It's an existential jailbreak. Yeah, and right? people are saying, hey, I got the keys. Let's get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I'm going to uh, really cherish this. If people want to learn more about you and about where all your books, what's the best way to find you? Are you on social media? 
I am. I'm on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn and I'm regrettably on Facebook. I can't stand it. But uh, <laughs> I, I post on Twitter every day. Uh, my tech people put something on LinkedIn every day. But go to alanweiss.com, A-L-A-N-W-E-I-S-S.com. And there are free newsletters and free podcasts and free video and free audio. I'm not selling you a thing. If you have listeners who are in Australia or the UK, be there toward the end of I the do. year. You'll find those um, those opportunities on my website as well. Well, thank you, Alan, so much. It was so great chatting with you. Do you have any parting words before we sign off? Well, first of all, you're fabulous. So thank you for inviting me. And what your shirt says is true. We feel fabulous if we allow ourselves to feel fabulous. Right. I love that. Well, thank you again. And I wish you all the best. And I hope we're going to stay in touch. I hope so, too. Please, you know, let me know if I can be of help. And who knows if I ever come to New York? Well, I actually plan on coming to New York. I'll look you up. Please do that. I'll buy you a drink. Do you mean that? I mean it. Uh, you come across as someone who you don't hold back and you say exactly what you think. I love that. Yeah. Well, listen, life's too short not to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And if you don't like what I talk about, that's fine. My goal isn't to convert people. My goal is to force them to think. And it's all about being authentic. I know that word is used so often, but yeah. there's so many bullshitters out there, pardon my yeah. French. And I, I really appeal or I'm attracted to people that are just like cut to the chase and are who they are. Yeah. Where are you in Canada? Well, I'm living in Calgary, but I'm originally from Montreal. I, I used to run Canada for a consulting firm. I've probably been to more. Used to run years. Canada? <laughs> yeah, I used to run Canada. But uh, I mean, that's okay because to... we could we could use a new leader. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been to Chicoutimi, Trois Rivières, Hamilton, you, you name it. I've been all over. But oh, wow. next year we're taking an Australian uh, Australian. Next year we're taking an Alaskan cruise, and I wind up in Vancouver. Oh, so, okay, but you've never you know, been there. I've been to Vancouver five, six times. Oh, now. you have. Okay. Vancouver, but, you know, if, if you find out you're going to be in the neighborhood, I'll buy you a drink. Yeah. Okay. Keep that in mind. All right. All right. Well, thank you again. And um, let's stay in touch. Please. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. And there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe learned a few things to help you with your branding. This show is a work in progress, so please remember to rate and review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like help creating brand awareness for your business, please reach out to me on any of the social platforms under, you guessed it, Branding Badass. I promise you, I reply to all my messages. Branding Matters was produced, edited, and hosted by Jolie Goodson, also me. So thank you again, and until next time, here's to all you badasses out there. Thank you.